Thank you very much for allowing me to speak this uh, event. My topic is on weakness, strength, and sickness, health in ancient Taoist philosophy. It is well known that ancient Chinese texts use a wide variety of pairs of opposites to indicate processes of change, generation, and reversal. The most basic of these distinctions is certainly the yin-yang pair. The specific relations between the two elements of such distinctions can be highly complex. Sometimes the elements are complementary, sometimes sequential, sometimes antagonistic, sometimes mutually inclusive, sometimes mutually exclusive, sometimes hierarchical, sometimes not, and typically at least some of the above at the same time. In the Tao Te Ching in particular, a number of distinctions connote reversal. In fact, the very notion of reversal, found in Chinese, is explicitly and comprehensively identified with the Tao itself in the first line of chapter 40, which says simply, reversal is the movement of the Tao. The Tao is the course of nature, if you want to call it that, operates on the basis of reverse. The brightness of the day returns to the darkness at night. The sun, the moon, and other celestial bodies move like a wheel in a circular fashion so that whatever is up goes down and whatever is down goes up. Thus, distinctions such as brightness, darkness, and up-down imply paradoxical turns. That which is bright is, by the very virtue of being bright, at the same time darkening. And that which is up is exactly therefore also and at the same time on its way down. Two of the most prominent paradoxical or reversing distinctions in the Tao Te Ching are the closely related pairs weak, strong, and soft, hard. In short, the soft-hard distinction is simply one of the more concrete types of the more general weak-strong distinction. Interestingly enough, the above-quoted chapter 40 continues in the second line by saying, weakness is the usefulness of the Tao. This clearly implies the paradoxical message that the weak will in fact turn out to be more powerful than the strong, and that the strong will, within the context of natural processes, reverse to a position of weakness. The paradigmatic image illustrating the paradoxical distinction, soft-hard, as a concrete manifestation of the weak, strong reversal is water. Chapter 78 says, quote, Nothing in the world is smoother and softer than water, but nothing surpasses it in tackling the stiff and the hard. And the chapter continues to point out that water defeats the solid and the soft defeats the hard. These words immediately invoke the probably universal insight that water grinds the stone, but at least within a Taoist context, they also take on a sexual meaning. The soft is associated with yin, and thereby with feminine sexuality and the feminine genitals, while the stiff and the hard obviously is associated with yang, and thereby with male sexuality and the male genitals. The picture that I'm going to show is a contemporary tourist site close to Beijing that includes a natural wonder manifesting this Taoist imagery in stone.
unfortunately doesn't come out very clear, uh, but you can see these two elements, and I'll pass around the picture that you can see it in much more clarity. In the just quoted chapter 78 of the Tao Te Ching, it becomes especially clear that the soft heart and weak strong distinctions, at least from a Taoist perspective, imply a contest. They are engaged in some sort of combat with one another. Paradoxically, and if the picture would be a little clearer, you could see somehow the sort of even antagonistic positioning of the two elements. Uh, paradoxically, the element that will ultimately triumph is not the apparently advantaged strong or hard one, but to the contrary, the seemingly disadvantaged soft or weak side of the distinction. Water will gradually erode the stone, and in sexuality, the female will absorb the generative energy of the male and become the source of new life. So sexuality is depicted as a competition here between the male and the female about the accumulation of generative power. In this competition, the male is doomed to be literally the loser who ends up spent. And the female, if all goes according to nature, will eventually be the winner who takes it all only, of course, for the sake of eventually giving up what she has gained by giving birth. Um, you can just pass this around. The paradoxical reversal of the soft, hard, and weak, strong distinction is not only characteristic of the procreation battle between the sexes. It also constitutes the basic pattern of physical combat between groups in war and between individuals in fights. Sun Tzu's Art of War, Sun Tzu Bing, find other ancient treatises on war, as well as the rich tradition of literature on martial arts, are to a certain extent further elaborations of a short stanza in chapter 69 of the Tao Te Ching, which appears to be quoting proverbial wisdom of the time. I quote from the Tao Te Ching, with respect to the usage of Weapons, there is a saying, I do not dare to be the Lord and rather be the host. I do not dare to go an inch forward and rather retreat a foot. So the weak and soft combatant who avoids contact with the enemy and simply evades him will thereby tease the opponent into releasing his energies. The same paradoxical logic of reversal as in the battle of the sexes, applies in war. One wins not by overpowering the other through force, but by making the opponent move and shoot and thereby exhaust himself. The strong, by making use of his strength, loses it and becomes weak, and the weak, by making use of her weakness, gains strength and triumphs. Next to water, Another major example of the paradoxical soft heart and weak strong distinction in the Tao Te Ching is the newly born infant. Chapter 55 says about it, quote, bones and muscles are soft and weak, but its grip is firm. It does not yet know about the joining of the male and the female, but its penis is erect. The infant represents human life as its softest and weakest. At the same time, it also represents human life at its highest concentration of power. 
The baby boy, not yet sexually active, has a powerful erection that is not in danger of leading to ejaculation and thereby the loss of energy. He can, as the chapter continues, scream all day without getting hoarse. Right after birth, the human being is not only at its softest and weakest, but also just because of this, also at the point of utmost invulnerability. It is the farthest away from the eventual end point of its paradoxical reversal from life into death. It is therefore, one can conclude, of its of greatest possible vitality. The newborn baby is the prime example of the paradoxical Taoist identification of softness and weakness with health. This has to be acknowledged in order to trace the relation between the distinctions soft-hard and sick-healthy in Taoist texts. The invulnerability of the infant, its impregnable health, is further illustrated in chapter 55. I quote, Wasps, scorpions, vipers, and snakes do not bite it. Birds of prey and wild beasts do not seize it. End of quote. I do not know, and if so, why this is true, but this is not the question here. It is philosophically deducted here that at birth humans are at maximum softness and weakness, and therefore at maximum vitality levels, and therefore at maximum immunity against everything life-threatening or unhealthy. It is also deducted elsewhere in the Tao Te Ching that growing up, and thereby growing old, is a process of gradually losing one's weakness and softness, and thereby losing one's vitality, and thereby continuously, continually de decreasing health uh, as a continuous approach towards death. Chapter 50 describes this at relative length. I quote, going out into life, going into death. The companions of life are 13. The companions of death are 13. For the human being, beings moving on, living their lives, they all become 13 spots of approaching death. The quote goes on. And for what reason? Because they live life. It is heard of those who are good at holding on to life, it's still the quote, when they walk in the hills, they avoid neither rhinos nor tigers. When they go into battle, they carry no armor or weapons. The rhino has no spot to jab his horn. The tiger has no spot to put its claws. For the weapons, there is no spot to lodge a blade. And for what reasons? Because they have no spots of death. End of quote. The 13 companions of life and death have been interpreted in various ways. Some commentators suggested that rather than 13, one should actually read one-third. But be that as it may, one of the most common explanations being that the number is that the number refers to the four limbs and nine openings of the human body. If so, it can be concluded that humans live by moving their limbs and taking in and discarding materials through their openings. At the same time, motion and the intake and expulsion of materials drains our energy and eventually lethally exhausts us. Only if one is capable of reverting to or maintaining an infant-like state of maximum vitality and minimum vulnerability, one will be able to stay healthy in the utmost fashion. 
Apparently only infants, not bitten by vipers, not seized by wild beasts, and Taoist practitioners, unhurt by tiger's claws and the blades of swords, can do this. Their utmost softness and weakness makes them untouchable and thus not exposed to any wear and tear. The extraordinary vigor shared by infants and master Taoist practitioners indicates a state of thickness of the de zhe ho. As the first line of chapter 55 succinctly declares, I quote, one who embodies the thickness of de is like an infant, end of quote. The term de has mostly been translated into English as virtue or power. I prefer the poetically less appealing, but perhaps philosophically somewhat more accurate translation efficacy. In any case, translations of such core philosophical terms uh, usually turn out to be quite problematic upon further inspection. Therefore, I will try here to briefly explain the meaning of the term de as it appears in the Tao Te Ching and thus how it can be understood within a Taoist framework and thereby how it is related to a Taoist conception of health, power and health. Um, the it is evident that De, along with Dao, the main subject of the Dao De Jing, literally the classic scripture of Dao and De, uh, is yeah, the main subject in the text. The two terms appear in conjunction in chapter 51, which begins by saying that everything that is generated, Sheng by Dao, and nourished, Xu by De, while Dao and De are clearly depicted as generating and nourishing powers. They are not, and this is important to note, conceived of as creating or creational forces with any transcendent or divine status. Sheng literally means to give birth, and Xu as a verb also means more concretely to raise animals, or as a noun, domestic animals. Clearly, the semantics is directly related to fertility and procreation in nature, and in the case of De, also to techniques of utilizing and enhancing the fertile and vital potentials in nature. Simply put, the beginning of chapter 51 can be interpreted as saying that the cause of nature, Tao, is a generative process of continuous procreation and that it entails powers or of vitalizing effects. The same chapter continues by saying the 10,000 10, things honor Tao and cherish De. Honoring Tao, cherishing De, none is rewarded for this. So it happens constantly self-so. End of quote. The term self-so Zuran underlines once more that the text speaks about processes of autopoetic uh, procreation rather than of divine creation. Tao and De are the central notions used to portray nature and the world as a whole as a continuously self-generating and self-regenerating process. Chapter 59 um, talks a little more concretely about De. In the context of recommending the general, let's say, attitude of being spare as a way to attain longevity, uh, it is further suggested to practice early accommodation, zao fu, 
which can be interpreted as learning to adopt smoothly and as soon as possible to circumstances and processes within one's environment. If one is able to seamlessly fit into one's surroundings and thereby nourish, nourishes one's energies and uh, optimizes one's efficacy or dirt. The text says, I quote, early accommodation is called multiple accumulation of efficacy or of the. Clearly, the Tao Te Ching conceives of the this power as an efficacious force that can be cultivated and fostered or wasted and spoiled. And that is indicative of a person's and organism's or a thing's vitality. One may simply call it an ancient Taoist concept of health. A healthy person is one who is, to quote chapter 55 again, in a state of thickness of the the whole. One of the longest passages in the Tao Te Ching speaks about the, that speaks about the is found in chapter 54. I quote, when cultivation reaches the body, the will be genuine. When cultivation reaches the family, the will be abundant. When cultivation reaches the village community, the will be lasting. When cultivation reaches the state, the will be rich. When cultivation reaches the world, the will be broad. At first sight, these lines may seem somewhat cryptic, but once one looks at the as a concept of health and takes into account that the Tao Te Ching, at the time of its composition, was mainly functioning as a guidebook for political rulers, it turns out to be a rather straightforward advice on what we could perhaps call a general health policy, not even that different from contemporary ideas. Health, just like sickness, is something that spreads and can be contagious. If individuals cultivate their bodies, for instance by eating well and exercising, their health will be solid. If this takes place within a functional family, an individual's health will flourish more. If the families of a community are capable of maintaining healthy relations, social life will be healthy. If the communities within a country follow such healthy lifestyles, the country as such will be in good condition. And if more and more such countries exist in the world, universal health will become achievable, at least from a Taoist health political point of view. Before moving on to another major Taoist text, the Zhuangzi, let me briefly reca recapitulate what has been said so far. The Tao Te Ching operates with a number of paradoxical distinctions, among them the soft-hard and the quite parallel weak-strong distinction. Both are paradoxical because, as believed to be in the case of both sexuality and warfare, the soft and the weak actually overcome and defeat the hard and the strong. Thus, a reversal takes place, the strong turns out to be weak and the weak to be strong. Several images il illustrate the paradoxical qualities of the soft and the weak, such as water the in and the infant. In this way, the soft and the weak, materialized in the forms of, for instance, water and the infant, are indicators of health and associated with the thickness of the. The notion of the represents quite generally the powers of vitalizing efficacy present in nature and capable of being cultivated 
and accumulated by humans, both individually and uh, in the larger community. As a political text, the Tao Te Ching advocates a health policy based on a cultivation and accumulation of birth. There are many differences between the Zhuangzi and the Tao Te Ching, both philologically and philosophically. The Zhuangzi, the Zhuangzi is largely written in prose, it's much longer, and also often less cryptic. And rather than relying quite exclusively on imagery, it also makes ample use of narratives, and in particular, allegories. Philosophically, it tends to advocate political abstinence rather than giving advice on how to rule. Philosophically speaking, the second text is, at least in my opinion, and I guess also Professor Lloyd agrees, uh, more subtle, at least often, than the Tao Te Ching, incorporating humor, multivocal debates, and intricate philosophical argumentation. As I hope to show, its depiction of health is also somewhat more complex than that of the Tao Te Ching that I just talked about. As seen above, the paradoxical way of conceptualizing the soft hard and weak strong distinction in the Tao Te Ching is not extended to the healthy sick distinction in the Tao Te Ching. Health is unequivocally good and sickness is bad. On the individual level, reaching longevity means maximizing health and minimizing sickness. And on the political level, Health is envisioned to spread universally so that, I quote, the will be broad and sickness insignificant. In the Zhuangzi, however, the healthy sick distinction too becomes paradoxical. And this, I think, is philosophically significant. And this is basically the main philosophical point of my paper. Chapter 5 in the seven inner chapters of the Zhuangzi which are often assumed to be written more or less as such by the historical master Zhuang, who gave the text its name, deals practically exclusively with apparently sick people, cripples, men severely mutilated by physical punishment and physical freaks. Nevertheless, all of these people are obviously examples of accomplished Taoists, they are models to be venerated and emulated. And interestingly enough, the chapter title, De Chung Fu, is the only one in the inner chapters, and for that matter in the whole book, which includes the term De. A.C. Graham translates it as the signs of fullness of power. The very title thus already hints at a paradox. A chapter featuring a parade of cripples is presented as a chapter on extraordinary vigor. A short section at the end of the chapter introduces cripple lipless, Graham's translation, he translates the speaking names uh, of the text, and another guy named Pitcher Neck, two physically challenged individuals who made great careers as highly venerated court officials. Of the first one it is said, I quote, cripple lipless with the crooked legs advised Duke Ling of Wei. The duke was so pleased with him that when he looked at normal men, their legs were too lengthy. Similarly, Duke Huan of Qi, Pichonek's employer, was so fond of his advisor that, I quote, when he looked at normal men, their necks were too scrawny. End of quote. 
The narrator draws the following morale from these two cases, I quote from the text, to the extent that er stands out, we lose sight of the bodily shape. When men do not lose sight of what is out of sight, but do lose sight of what is in plain sight, we may speak of the oversight which is seeing things as they are. Both Cripple Lipless and Pitchernak are portrayed as men of outstanding birth, or examples of evident healthiness. This goes normally unseen, while their conspicuous sickly abnormalities are usually immediately noticed by the people around them. The employers of Cripple Lipless and Pitchernak, however, were able to reverse their perceptions and therefore to see the extraordinary healthiness of their employees. This led them to a twisted perception of health and sickness, in which the normal no longer appeared normal to them, and the odd no longer odd. In fact, this altered perception, paradoxically, is, one is told, a very healthy one. It is the oversight which is seeing things as they are. The cases of Triple Lipless and Pitcherneck are preceded by a much longer story about a hunchback named Ugly Face Tua. We learn, and it's a nice quote, that young men who lived with him were so fascinated that they couldn't leave. The girls who, when they saw him, begged their parents, I would rather be his concubine than anyone else's wife. And they could be counted in dozens. Although he was without, uh, the text says, revenues with which to make waning bellies wax, and even though no one ever heard him say anything new, the Duke of Lu made him his chief minister, only for Ugly Face Tour to step down soon after and leave the court altogether. The devastated Duke then asked Confucius, who here, as often in the drawings, appears as a spokesperson for Taoism and not as a proper Confucian. So he, Confucius, as a spokesperson for Taoism, is asked for consolation and for an explanation of all this. Confucian answers, as it is also common in the Zhuangzi, with several allegories, including the image of, and quote, some little pigs sucking at their dead mother, and the example of a man with chopped feet who will not grudge you the loan of his shoes. He also points to certain customs stipulating that a royal concubine, I quote, will not clip her nails or pierce her ears, and that a man with a new bride stay away, has to stay away from the court, and is not to be even sent on any official missions. Confucius then explains the relation of these appearingly odd and somewhat unrelated cases, to the Duke and his encounter with Ugly Face Tour. The images of the dead sow and the men without feet are interpreted as examples of a hollow form. The sow still looks like their feeding mother to the piglets, but they soon realize that, their nurturing, that her nurturing power is gone, and they abandon her empty body. Likewise, the man without feet can abandon his shoes because there is nothing to fill them. The two examples of court etiquette illustrate an extreme esteem, on the other hand, of physical integrity. The concubines are not supposed to take anything away from their body, 
including their fingernails and the little chunk of flesh that would have to be sacrificed for wearing an earring. Similarly, a newlywed man who probably has a very exhausting sex life and deprives himself of his most precious vital energies should not be allowed to come even close to the court. So the cases of a hollow form, a body or body part deprived of its health to the utmost degree, and the cases of excessive concern for bodily integrity are contrasted, both are contrasted with the case of ugly face Tor. The deformed man whom everybody, including the Duke, instinctively trusts and whose company and advice everyone yearns for. Ugly face Tor, Confucius says, is a man who keeps the de in him whole. The dead soul and the shoes of the man without feet have the hollow form, but they lack de or vital efficacy. These examples, therefore, show how an external form can deceive people's perception of health. What appears healthy in form may, in fact, be absolutely sick. And, as in the case of cripples lipless, pitcher neck, and ugly face tour, the opposite may be equally true. The difficulty with distinguishing correctly between conspicuous physical integrity and the not always so obvious vitality based not on the integrity of one's body but on the integrity of one's de has even afflicted the courts of the rulers. Well, there is a nearly absurd overemphasis on keeping one's nails, ears, and sperms untouched. Rulers often fail to identify truly healthy individuals. Or, as in the case of the Duke, even if they somehow acknowledge the healthiness of someone like Ugly Face Tour, they still do so unknowingly. Why? So, the cases of Cripple Lipless, Pitchernack, and Ugly Face Tour all point to a paradoxical understanding of health in the Zhuangzi. Unlike commonly assumed, health cannot be equated with immaculate physical appearance or an absence of ailments and physical handicaps. The common non-paradoxical conception of health as simply the opposite pole of an unambiguous sick healthy distinction is wrong. And most importantly, and this is I guess the major point uh, after these more or less philosophical considerations. So most importantly, practically speaking, they obstruct one's capacities for perceiving the extraordinary vigor emanating from the cultivation of one's de. Often enough, the healthy form obscures a sick de, just as a sick form may well obscure a healthy de. The allegories of the cripples in chapter 5 in the Zhuangzi illustrate this, and they particularly advocate a more appropriate understanding of, and more importantly, a sharpening of our perspective, of our perspective capacities, perceptive capacities, sorry, a sharpening of our perceptive capacities regarding the paradoxically intertwined sick healthy distinction. 
To conclude, I will present a very short sketch of what may be called a pathology of health. Zhuangzi's concern was about the paradoxical aspects of health, and more concretely, the problems that may arise because of it. People tend, on the one hand, to lose their sense of the fullness of Dürr, and mistakenly identify health with superficial characteristics, such as an apparently intact bodily shape. This may give rise to false conceptions of health, that is, to prejudices about the health of individuals who do not conform to commonly held but wrong beliefs about what a healthy person should look like. And perhaps even more dangerously, if we take into account the Tao Te Ching and the fact that the protagonists, even in the stories of the Zhuangzi discussed above, are political leaders, to misguided health policies. Modern society provides us with ample examples of the cultivation of a false health on both the social and the individual level. The most drastic political cult of a false health was probably the one practiced in my old home country not so long ago, and I can illustrate it by a few pictures. Well, obviously Nazi Germany was very much focused on bringing about Volksgesundheit, or people's health. This notion was based on an extreme form of a health paradigm that equates health with the absence of sickness and it strove for radically pure health. The Nazis were obsessed with purity, in particular so with physical purity. It is well known that their most central concern was racial purity, and for the sake of Volksgesundheit, everything that was deemed not pure, and therefore sick, should be eliminated. This was the basis for most of their policies, ranging from comparatively benign sports and physical education programs to eugenics, euthanasia, and eventually genocide. So from a moral perspective, the Nazi concept of health can be called not only false, but perhaps evil. As mentioned above, the term de can have a moral connotation as well, which is why it is particularly in Confucian texts sometimes translated as virtue. Thus, it could be argued that the Zhuangzi's criticism of the health concept conception lacking in de also implies a moral criticism. I would be cautious with this. In my view, de, when used in the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi, resembles, if anything at all, the pre-moral concept of virtue found in the ancient European world. Virtue in the classical sense of the Latin word virtu connotes supposedly masculine virtues such, such as strength, dynamism, and power, and we heard a lot about these things uh, today and yesterday. It's directly related to the Latin word vir for man, which is also the root of the present English word virile, obviously. So, unlike the virile, virile health implied by the ancient European virtu, the Taoist occurring in the Zhuangzi and elsewhere is, as could be seen, connected to, at least in part, supposedly feminine virtues such as weakness and softness, and thus the two notions point etymologically in different directions. Still, in their respective ways, I would say both virtu and de, 
may be associated with various forms of health, empowering those who have them with efficacy and productivity. In any case, one does not have to, and I mean this in an amoral, in a pre-moral sense. So, in any case, one does not have to go back to the often only all too convenient and often also misleading Nazi parallel for dismissing whatever one wants to dismiss, such as in this case, a skewed perception of health. The Zhuangzi is, in my view, not so much worried about Nazi-like evil conceptions of health as it is concerned with the loss of sensibility for what is healthy in a non-moral sense. There is no shortage of examples of an obsessive pursuit of sick health in such a non-moral sense in contemporary society as well. I have another illustration of this. There's a huge demand, or uh, let me put it like this, typically all kinds of cosmetic physical procedures are advertised as providing, that, providing those who pay for them with a healthy look. In light of such phenomena, the passages from the drawings presented above thus surprisingly seem to be timelier than could be expected. They point out how a society operating with a normal sick health distinction can easily distort its capability of perceiving health and instead become obsessed with a false health. In order to help you avoid such sensory deterioration and to increase your awareness of the extraordinary vigor resulting from the fullness of the, I finally show you a sample picture of a Taoist cripple, a man named Li Tiergui, which literally means Lee Iron Crutch, who is one of the legendary eight immortals and whose portrait you may therefore use as a guide for identifying truly healthy individuals. I'll show this to you. Uh, as well. It's a little small again. Just uh, to finish a short explanation. So, Li Tiergui is one of the eight immortals of Taoist mythology. Uh, the iron crutch, according to legend, was given to him by Shi Wangmu after she healed a uh, legendary mother goddess, after she healed an abscess on his leg. She also taught him how to become immortal. His other attribute is a pumpkin containing a magic potion. Lee is sometimes described as irascible and ill-tempered, but also as benevolent to the poor, sick, and the needy, whose suffering he alleviates with special medicine from his gourd. He's often portrayed as an ugly old man with dirty face, scraggly beard, and messy hair, held by a golden band. He walks with the aid of an iron crutch and often has a gourd slung over his shoulder or held in his hand. He often is depicted as a clown figure that descends to earth in the form of a beggar who uses his power to fight the for the oppressed and needy. That's it. Thank you.